I'm actually going to start off tonight with a quote from Thursday night when Adam spoke. I really think it's honestly a good summary of the theme, like one of the main themes in our new series that we're starting today. So here it is. Uh, We need to wake up that what God is up to is all around us. We need to start thinking the kingdom of heaven is happening now and start thinking it is really close to us. Even in the not yet moments, God is at work. And he's really close. He's doing something. You have not been cursed and you have not been abandoned. God has not forgotten you. God is so crafty He can even work in the disappointments that he didn't administer to your life. This is the message of Jesus, and this is the good news. God's kingdom is now. It is here. It is breaking in, and even in the places it is not, he is still present, and he is at work. Amen, right? Amen. Well, it's not lost on me, and it's definitely not lost on the staff and many of you here that our all-church conference this year, which was planned months and months in advance, came directly after the funeral of the beloved family, the Ryder family. And I think that God knew, number one, that not only we needed to come together after what had happened, but I think he also knew we needed to hear this. We needed to hear this truth, that he can work in the losses and in the disappointments that he didn't administer in our lives and that he is present and he is good, working to bring life from our pain. Well, today we are actually gonna start a new series, and it's entitled Redeeming Love. And for the next couple weeks, we're gonna look at the book of Ruth. It's a small book, it's only four chapters, you might miss it on your way through the Old Testament, but it's one of the most compelling stories in the whole Bible. Really what it's about is God's mission to restore not just the lives of the characters in the story, but he weaves together their faithful obedience to bring about his redemptive purposes for the whole world. The word redemption really just means regaining or fulfilling of something in exchange for some type of payment. And redeeming love really is just sacrificing oneself for love. And without sugarcoating the struggles of the characters in our story today, the book of Ruth invites us to look at how God's redeeming love is still at work in the hard and seemingly insignificant moments of our lives. Let's go ahead and pray. Holy Spirit, we do, we just invite you here more this morning. God, we say you are good, you are good. And God, I just acknowledge that you are king. God, you are so great. But you're also our comforter, which makes you feel really, really small in a good way. So God, would you come close to us today? Would you remind us, would you show us, would you reveal to us your redemptive work in our lives? God, would you give us signs of hope today? And I pray you would work mightily in this room, Lord, that this would be just a fresh word for some people here today, an encouraging word. God, would you open our eyes, would you open our ears, would you allow us to truly hear your voice and none other? 
And God, would you just grant gifts of faith in this room right now in the name of Jesus? We give you this time. Amen. Well, the book of Ruth is written as a story. It really is written as a story. Who here loves a good story? Yeah, right? We all love a really good story, especially a true one, which this is. (laughs) And uh, actually, originally, the author of this narrative did not break up the story with these chapters and these verses. It was really meant to be read as this one cohesive literary unit. The beginning, the middle, and the end are all interrelated, seamlessly connected by plot, character development, and an undercurrent of these invaluable themes. Uh, Carolyn Custis James, she says this about the Book of Ruth. She said, no longer can we regard Ruth as a lightweight among the deeper books of the Bible. And this is not some sweet romantic interlude tucked in among the more significant prophetic historical writings to relieve the tension generated by sordid accounts of God's people in moral decline. The book stands on its own as a substantial contribution to our understanding of God. So today, we're looking at Ruth chapter one. And if you need a Bible, we have some Bibles on either side of the stage and in the back as well. You feel free to take that with you, use it today. Since we're looking at a story, I wanna just frame today's talk a little bit different. First, I just wanna kind of set the background, um, set the stage for the scene. And then I wanna actually just really take some time to read the story and dive into the story. And then uh, we'll glean some, uh, some applications, some, some things to actually apply to our lives at the end. So first, let's just set the scene for the story. Ruth lived in what is called the time of the judges. And the book of Judges, which is right before the book of Ruth, is summed up by its very last verse. In Judges 21, 25, if you literally flip your page or maybe look at the other page, it says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Sounds a little familiar, (laughs) maybe to what we're living in today. But really, this is just another way of saying the Israelites had turned their back on God. They had turned their back on God. And, And what we see in the book of Judges is that judgment comes in many forms. It comes in the form of military invasions and government collapses and foreign oppressors and even famines. And the story today is actually set in two locations. We have Bethlehem, which is just south of Jerusalem, and we have Moab, which is actually on the other side of the Dead Sea. Now, the Moabites were actually descendants of Lot, and they were worshipers of the god Chemosh, who actually, they would actually make human sacrifices, child sacrifices too. So, the Moabites (laughs) were not a beloved people in the sense the Israelites had gone to war with them during the time of the judges, so there's still this fresh animosity between these two people groups. So let's go ahead with that in mind, just dive into our text today. We'll start looking at just verses one through five. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malone 
and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malone and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, what's really unique about this story is its unusual beginning. The opening verses actually introduce this man named Elimelech, which his name means, my God is king, which is a pretty powerful name, and we're given the impression that the story is gonna be about this guy and his family. Yet after introducing just these trio of male characters, the story takes this unexpected twist. Within five short verses, death wipes the three main male characters off the, sa- off the stage and leaves these three grieving widows behind. Within the, within the first couple lines of the story, we're taken about as low as you can go in the ancient world. In, male, in a male-centered culture, where value was only prescribed to women based on their relationships to men, these husbandless women hold no value to anyone. And it almost seems like the story has nothing left to say. But that's just the beginning, right? It's just the beginning. And the focus quickly shifts to one woman, Naomi. And from this point on, the story is actually told from her perspective. Now here she is, she's left with two pagan, widowed daughters-in-law, with no grandchildren to carry on her family name. And to understand just a little bit of how dire this really is, widows back then were some of the most socially and economically vulnerable members in their society. The source of your status and value to society was your family back then. Now it's things like our education and, I don't know, our fame and our influence and our marketable skills. Uh, But back then, it all centered around your family and your family line. And for Naomi, she's actually the worst kind of widow because she's an older widow. She doesn't have any parents to go back to and she doesn't have any prospects of building a new family and marrying again and she doesn't have children with family that can support her either. So the implicit question that's just left hanging in the air at the end of, cha- at the end of verse five is really, what kind of future does Naomi have? Can she ever even recover from this? Can her emptiness ever be filled? And we read on in verse six. <clears throat> when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now here, Naomi, she's left with nothing, and she hears, she hears tell of, of the Lord visiting his people back in Bethlehem and giving them food. And and this news for her starts to to awaken a little bit of hope, maybe the little bit that's left in her. 
So what does she do? For Naomi, when you have nothing and when you don't know what to do next, and you hear God is working, you walk. You walk. And I don't know if she knew what she was going to do when she got back there, but she heard God was at work, so she packs up her things, and she decides to head home. And here, on this dusty road to Bethlehem, we have one of the most incredible and beautiful interactions in the whole Bible. In Ruth 1.8, we continue, Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and she wept aloud. They all wept aloud. And she said, and they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. Before they're too far off, Naomi turns around and she she tells both women to go back to their homes. And they all break down and they weep together. You know, back then, when you marry into a family, you have this familial obligation to stay with that family, no matter what happens to your husbands. And here, Naomi is actually releasing these two women from that bond, and she's blessing them and saying, go back to your family. Go back where you'll actually have a future. And surprisingly, they both refuse. So Naomi further makes her case. In verse 11, Naomi said, return home. Just return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons (laughs) who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I have a husband today and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. And it's more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. For these two women, Orpah and Ruth, they're at least young widows, and if they stay in their culture, they actually have a really good chance of building another family, and Naomi knows this, and she knows that If they follow her, what kind of life they probably will have. And and there's actually a couple really chilling verses in chapter two of Ruth that give us a little bit more insight of what Naomi's talking about here. When Ruth was gleaning in the fields of Boaz, he looks at her and he says, stay with the women in my field, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. And he tells her he's ordered his men not to touch her. Why would he do this? Why would he do that? Why would he have to do that? I think the reality is that if they go with Naomi, they're not just going to be widows and racial outsiders, but because they are members of a hated race, they could be subjects to violence or worse. So Naomi tells him, go home, go home. And again, they weep together, but this time there's no counter-argument. They just cry, and Orpah finally decides to return home, and Naomi blesses her. 
And I don't think we should judge Orpa. I mean, this girl's got some good common sense, you know? But she, she does serve as a little bit of a contrast to what comes next. And in verse 15, we read, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. (laughs) How many of you have heard this exact passage in a wedding? or as even someone's wedding vows, yeah? A lot of us have, this is a very famous passage in the Bible. But in the original Hebrew, it's not as eloquent. It reads something like this. This is really what Ruth says. She says, I won't go, I won't go. You go, I go. You live, I live. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. You die, I die. It's much more compressed. I don't think I've ever heard a wedding vows said like that. I'd be like, ooh, authentic, very good. <laughs> uh, but for really any immigrant, let's be honest, for any immigrant, who has this prospect of leaving everything familiar behind and plunging into the unknown, it's always done with what? The hope of a better life, right? The hope of a better life. And that's why this statement is so astonishing. Here's someone who's willing to leave the familiar behind and plunge into a world she does not know, knowing that she's going to have a worse life. Knowing she's going to have a worse life. You know, we could surmise easily that it's simply because of Ruth's deep love for Naomi that she says this, but I actually think it's a lot more than that. Because Ruth isn't just making a promise to Naomi. She's making a promise to God, and not just Naomi's God. The word that she actually uses here, that that Ruth uses here, is the word Yahweh. It's personal. It means my God. My God. This is Ruth's conversion testimony right here. It could even be her actual conversion. It could be her actual conversion, where she turns from her old God and she says, your God, my God, my God. The chapter concludes in verse 18. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Good plan. (laughs) So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? 
The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now that we've read through chapter one, I just want to look at some of the takeaways from this passage. What does this story, thousands of years ago, have to do with us today? And what does it tell us today? Now, we might not struggle with things like famine or, you know, be with the constant threat of violence, but our struggles can be just as jarring. Maybe we've lost our job recently. Maybe we've You know, we own our own business and it's not doing well. Maybe we're struggling financially. Uh, Our family's struggling financially. Maybe our family's struggling relationally right now. Maybe you're dealing with chronic pain or maybe you've lost a loved one recently. When we hit hard times, what do we do? Our first point is this. Walk toward God and be honest with God. Be honest with God. When Naomi hears of God's activity, she packs her things and she walks toward him. Even with all of her anger, even with all of her doubts, even with all of her hurt, she takes a step toward him. And maybe because he's simply the only thing she has left in her life. Uh, you've heard of probably Corrie Ten Boom. She was a Holocaust survivor, and uh, she even met the Lord, you know, in the concentration ca- camps. I mean, she, she watched him minister to people there. I mean, her story is really incredible, and she literally says, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is actually all you have. It's all you have. Who here is like, yeah, <laughs> that's when I knew that Jesus was all I had. Naomi did not know how her life would work out, and her life had definitely not worked out the way that she had planned up to that point. And honestly, that's one of the hardest things for us, isn't it? When our life just isn't turning out the way we thought it would. When the relationship ends, or the career doesn't happen, and things seem to be farther and farther away, or they just stop happening altogether. Naomi She has every reason here to turn away from God. I mean, for some of us, that is our testimony. Something happened in our life, we turned away from God. That's our testimony. But for her, she has every reason to do that. And yet, she walks toward him. She walks toward him. Naomi's story, I think, is a real gift to our church. It's it's a gift to the church. She is actually what theologians now believe to be the female counterpart to Job. To Job, in the book of Job. Their struggles and their responses actually mirror one another. It's really beautiful. You know, Naomi faces God and poses difficult, disturbing questions to God without censorship. And these kind of responses give us permission to talk honestly about our own misgivings to God. So much of the Bible is written by people who are at the bottom. They're experiencing real struggle. 
And they do not tell us to put on a happy face. They don't. Eugene Peterson actually says, no literature is more realistic and honest in facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. And no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from any kind of difficulty. On every page of the Bible, there's recognition that faith encounters troubles. You know, for some of us, we need that permission because we need to not rush from the season of grief and hurt that we're in right now. There is a need to cry the tears that need to be cried. There are so many just beautiful examples of tears and complaints and protests to God. The Bible calls that a lament, a lament. And instead of just grumbling and complaining to ourselves about God, we bring those complaints and those laments to him and we process them in his presence. What we see in the Bible is time and time again, people come to the Lord and they throw their hurts at his feet. And the interesting thing is, these people are not the people who hate God. These people are the ones that are actually closest to God and love God the most. They're the ones that are the most honest with him. The most honest. The book of Job, think about it. I mean, it's, it's a book about a man complaining to God. That's what it's about. And in the end, God actually declares that he's more right than even all his friends, who this whole time have been defending God and have been saying God had done nothing wrong. God actually says, no, you're the one in the right. You're the one in the right. God welcomes honesty. He welcomes when you want to be raw in his presence. You know, Job did not mince words with God. In Job 19, 6 through 8, he says, Then know that God has wronged me, drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my path in darkness. He's not just complaining about his life. He's complaining about God to God. Not just by himself in the dark. Just, you know, that, that causes bitterness and resentment. But when we bring it to God's presence, it's, it's healing. It is so good. You know, psalm after psalm after psalm voices complaint and protest and hurt to the Lord. Psalm 88, 13 through 14, but I cry to you for help, Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? The question really is for us, what do we do with our hurts? What do we do with our dissatisfaction? What do we do with our unhappiness? Do we take them to the Lord? Do we take them to the Lord? You know, I actually had a, assignment uh, recently to make something for God. I actually had to create something, like a, something creative as a gift to God. I know it's an unusual assignment, but uh, I was a little stymied as to where to start. Where, what do I do for God? I mean, and I, I thought, you know, maybe what I'll do, I'll write a poem, because I used to do that a long time ago. I used to write poems. I'm like, I should do that again. <laughs> and that'll be my, my creative gift to God. And 
So I started to write this poem, and inadvertently, it started to turn into this lament. And I started pouring out this really, this deep hurt and loss uh, that I don't think I've ever processed in the presence of God before. And I don't know where it came from. I really don't know where it came from, but I do think that God was like, you need this. You need this. And you need to finally voice this in my presence. And I just sat there and I bawled. I'm like, I don't think this is what this assignment's about, but this is so the Lord. It's just so the Lord. And, I, and there was this weird just mix of both gratitude and this deep pain. And there was this sense that he was, he was just holding me up and he was healing me up. I needed it. You know, for those of us that have grown up in, you know, traditional church, <laughs> this idea of being brutally honest with God, even about God, and how we really feel, it almost feels wrong. It seems wrong, but, but mainly I think it's just simply because we haven't been modeled it or taught it from the pulpit. <laughs> and yet, when we open scripture for ourselves, when we read the word, it's there. It's beckoning us to be raw with God, to be real with God. And what we know is that when we do that, it grows our connection with our Father. Instead of it actually turning us away from Him, it actually draws us closer to Him. It's really beautiful. So first, walk toward God, be honest with God. And second, when we hit hard times, find somebody to walk with. Find somebody to walk with. You know, in times of grief and suffering, it's easy, trust me, I'm an, I'm an introvert actually, and it's easy to want to isolate, right? We want to mourn all by ourselves, but the book of Ruth says, find somebody to walk with. We need community the most when we are hurting. I know it's hard for our ego to, to look like a mess in front of people, but we need to look like a mess sometimes. We need to be real with people about how we're really doing. And we need a trusted friend who will let us just talk, right? Who won't fill the space with words, who will just simply listen. And I know, I know that when I say that, you immediately think, well, Heather, I don't have anybody like that in my life. You know, I don't have a Ruth to walk with. There's nobody that comes to mind right away, you know, that is somebody I could really just be that honest with and, and real with. Well, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus says to you, he says, hey, you. Hey, you. Your people, my people. Where you go, I go. And I'm not just going to die with you. I'm going to die for you so that we can always be together. Joni Erickson Tata, who has an incredible testimony. I really love women who have struggled and <laughs> gone through pain. I think Corey Ten Boom, Joni Erickson Tata, if you've never read their books or heard their testimonies, I highly recommend it. She was in a really horrible diving accident when she was a teenager, and it left her paralyzed from the neck down. And this is what she said. 
She said, you don't have to be alone in your hurt. Comfort is yours. Joy is actually an option. And it's all been made possible by your Savior. He went without comfort so that you might have it. And he postponed joy so that you might share in it. He willingly chose isolation so that you might never be alone in your hurt and your sorrow. And he did it on the cross. He did it on the cross. You know, Ruth, Ruth is one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus in the entire Old Testament. One of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus. Jesus will walk with you through your messes. He'll walk with you through your mess-ups. He'll walk with you through the stuff that happened in your past. And he'll walk with you through your pain and, and your fear and your hurt. He will walk with you. And if you ask him to, he will shoulder the burden of your life so that you can live free. So that you can live free. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. I love this passage. Come to me all You who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a comfort. And, you know, for those of you today who you say, you know what, honestly, I'm not facing a real struggle or hard time right now, Can I just say, someone might need you to be their Ruth. Someone might need you to be their Ruth. There are those who are hurting here today that are probably sitting right next to you. And you probably already know who this person is. You probably already are in relationship with them. And I just want to say, you do not need to have all the answers. Sometimes we don't... We don't approach people who are going through hard times because we just don't know what to say. Well, guess what? You don't have to say anything. (laughs) If you've got legs, you can walk. And that's really what people need. They need your presence, they need your time, and they need you to just give them space to process. You don't have to say anything. Sometimes silence is the best. Just do something with them. Take a walk. Take a walk with them. Now, lastly... When we hit hard times, trust that God is still working even when you don't see it. Trust that God is still working. What I love is that at the end of this chapter, when they reach Bethlehem, her old friends ask, is this Naomi? And she makes this really cute play on her own name. She says, oh, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant and sweet. That's actually what her name means. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which actually means bitter. It means bitter. Because I went away full, and I've come back empty. And what's amazing is that's simply not true. It's not true. She may feel empty, and I want to validate that. She may feel empty, but the truth is her redemption is already at hand. It's literally right next to her hand. Ruth is standing right there. Ruth is standing right there. Here's this incredible treasure, and she says, I've come back empty. And I'm thinking your friends are probably like, well, then who's this strange-looking person? And Ruth's probably like, 
thanks. <laughs> you know, our hurt and our unmet expectations can blind us from what God is already weaving together in our lives. It would actually be through Ruth and Boaz that Naomi would rediscover God as her redeemer, that she would eventually re-inherit her land that she lost, and she would even have a grandson. She would have a grandson who would be the grandfather to King David himself who would even be in the lineage of Christ himself. Talk about redemption. Talk about redemption. You know, we all have expectations, right? Let's be honest. We all have pictures of what we think our lives should look like. But when we're not bringing those before the Lord, they can begin to blind us from what God is actually doing around us. Who here, for example, <laughs> knew your spouse for years before you ever thought about dating them? Yeah, there's probably a few of us, yeah, okay. I knew Adam for three years, three years. And I thought I would always see the one coming from a mile away. I thought I was so just, intuitive that I would just know the moment that I met that person. Ha. Huh. <laughs> I was actually in a season where I'd gone through a really bad breakup. Uh, I was single for a long time. And I remember going, God, where are you? What is going on? I'm probably never going to get married. This is ridiculous. All the while, I was really good friends with this guy named Adam. And I was one night just going to study, and I showed up at this coffee shop, and the only chair that was available in the entire coffee shop was the one right in front of my good old friend Adam. And I thought, well, hey, that's cool. I know Adam. He'll probably let me sit with him. And, and then we ended up closing out the shop, just talking, and I thought, oh, that was pretty cool. And then a friend, I told a friend that week, I said, oh, I bumped into Adam. It was like the first time we've ever sat and just talked one-on-one. -on -one. It was really great. And she looks at me and she said, I've always thought you and Adam would be great together. And I literally said this. I said, oh, no, that would just be weird. It'd be like dating my brother. I'm like, oh, no. And she pursued it even more. She said, no, 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 I want you to pray about this. I'm like, pray about this, girl, this is weird. No, I'm not praying about this. And uh, she, she didn't let go until I finally said, okay, fine, I'll pray about it. And I think I, I don't know, I gave like a half-hearted prayer on my way home. I was just like, God, this is you, you know, let me know. And, and literally that week, um, Adam, who never played games with girls, who was you know, the slowest mover in the world, <laughs> called me up and said, hey, let's hang out again. And I thought, whoa, what? Let's hang out again? Okay, you know. And so there we were again on a Friday night, uh, our first unofficial date. And I thought, well, hey, we're just hanging out. We're both studying together. We got no studying done. We just sat there. We talked the whole time. And as we're walking to my car, and I realized, oh my gosh, he's walking me to my car. This is really weird. You know, he's just my friend. What's going on? I literally put the key into my car to unlock it. And, and he goes, Heather, what's going on here? And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm just hanging out with you, dude. I don't know what's going on here. And he said, where are we? You know, where, where are we? Because I just want to be clear. You know, we're good friends, and I, I want to protect our friendship. And, you know, I don't just date to date. I date for marriage. 
And I thought, oh my goodness, he's just said the word marriage. <laughs> and I'm sweating here at this point thinking, you know, I don't, what do I think? I don't know. I said, Adam, I really respect you. This has been really fun, like getting to know you a little better. And honestly, I'm just intrigued at what the Lord might be up to. I don't know. And he said, me too. He's like, would you be cool if we just started hanging out you know, more intentionally? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And I, and I get in my car and I'm driving away and it hits me. I mean, it hits me. And I just start laughing. I start laughing and I'm thinking, okay, God, if this is you, you, you got me. You got me. I did not see this one coming. If this was you, if this is you, I can't, I can't even, really, Adam? <laughs> and, you know, we just celebrated our 11-year anniversary, and I'm just saying, those girls and guys out there, where you think you know the picture of who it is that you want to be with one day, you have this picture in mind, just keep laying that before the Lord. Because God's will is always what's best for us. God's will is the safest place we can be. And when we follow God, uh, it's just, it's beautiful how he writes our story. It's just beautiful how he writes our story. It's It's true that when we have a picture of what we think God should be doing in our lives, we can miss what God's already up to. His plans are, Not always our plans, right? (laughs) But he is always working. And some of you, you're in that place right now. Things are not going the way that you thought, and you can't see the signs of hope that God is sowing in your life right now. And I want to encourage you. This is what the book of Ruth teaches us. To have hope, to not lose hope that no matter what is going on in your life right now, the truth is that God is doing 10,000 things for his glory and for your good right now. That's who our God is. He's the redeemer. Even when God appears to be absent and even when he appears to not be listening, he is at work. You know what is so beautifully designed about this story is how little God is actually mentioned in the story at all. And yet, that's his brilliance, because God is the main character here. He is the main character. He's weaving his providence through every scene, through every scene. This whole story is about God's mission to restore this family And it's through this family that his son, Jesus, would be born. His son, Jesus, would be born. Ruth is Jesus' great, 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 great grandmother. I don't know if I got the most, all the greats in there, but she's one of his mothers. And through Jesus, through Jesus, he would restore the whole world with his redeeming love with his redeeming love. I want to end with this quote from Corrie Ten Boom. She says, no pit is so deep that he is not deeper still. With Jesus, even in our darkest moments, the best remains, and the very best is yet to be. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand and just 
enter into some worship and, and ministry time. And simply by that, we're just gonna wait on the Lord and use this time as a time of response. God, what do you want me to do with this? If this is true, how should I respond? So we're just gonna take some time to wait on the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come? Would you show, show us what you're up to in our hearts right now, Lord? How would you have us respond right now? Mm. Come more, Lord. I really think that there are some of you here that you're a Naomi. You're a Naomi, and you are just, you're in a really bitter season right now. And I don't think it's, I really do not think it's just coincidence that Adam said what he did during the conference and that this is the sermon that you heard today. I really believe that God is speaking to you and that he wants to encourage you. He wants to show you, reveal to you the ways that he is already at work in your life to give you hope, to give you hope. And if that's, if that's you, if, you're, if you are just in a really hard season right now, we want to pray for you. And we want to just bless you, that God would show you the ways he's at work, and that he just put his arms around you today. And I also sense that there are some of you that when I was talking about walking toward God, if you're honest, you've never actually turned toward God. That this is, this is a time where you actually sense the Lord is inviting you to say, hey, you know what, relinquish, relinquish the control that you've had over your life and come to me, walk with me. That he's inviting you to a better way of life. That he's actually designed you to walk with him. And when we walk alone, the burden is great. And I just sense the Lord is saying, you know what, today is the day. I want to take you by the hand and we're going to walk together. If that's you, I encourage you, just ask Jesus. Say, God, okay, I'm done. I'm done running my own life. I, I just say yes to you and I say, God, I want to walk with you through this life. And, and if you, even if you're honest, you... You did do that at one point, but you have turned away from God because life did not go the way you thought it would. And you thought, God, like if I follow you, it's going to be a good life, and it wasn't. And you're disillusioned and you're hurt and you're, you're in a time of just walking away from him. I think today he might be saying, come back, come back, turn back to me. And if that's you, I encourage you, would you, would you take time to lament in his presence. Not away from him, but in his presence. He's a big God. He can handle it. And he wants, he wants to be with you. And, and just lastly, for those of you, when I was talking about being a Ruth to someone, someone came right in your mind. It was like this intersecting thought. This person you hadn't thought of in a while came right into your mind, and you thought, I wonder how they're doing. I remember they were going through a hard time. I wonder how they're doing. And I think God is just, he's simply calling you to be a better friend in this season. And that does not mean that you have all the answers, right? It just simply means that you are a little bit more intentional in spending time with that person, which is really just what they need. 
And, and if there's someone that came to mind, I just, we would love to pray for you. We'd love to pray that God would provide opportunities for you to walk beside that person in the season that they're in. Um, Michael, do you have anything else? Just one thing to add. Yeah. <clears throat> I just saw a picture of, of uh, people this morning. You were coming before God and you were holding, uh, you'd have a toy in your hand and it was a toy that you had as a child. And, and I was like, well, what does that mean? And the sense I had was that for people here today, there's something that you've held on to for years, something really precious, mm. but it's been an expectation you've put on God. And, it, and he said, you have to come and lay that down today. Mm. And it's like, it's like something that you've held over him and it's a constant issue between him and you. And I don't know if that's just for a hand or like a, a few people, but I just feel like today's the day to, to hand that over to God and, and, and trust him that he really does know what's best for you. So That's great. Well, if we apply to you at all today, we just invite you to come forward. Really, all we do is we just have a guys with guys, girls with girls. We just pray for one another, put a hand on your shoulder, and just ask for the Lord's presence to come.